So tonight I want to look at these two suttas that have been out there for a while. I hope you have them. I know there are a few copies of this first one is Making a Wish. And the second one will be with Chunda. C-U-N-D-A. says, I regret that I haven't been able to come to see 
the Tathagata, the Buddha, in a long time. And the Buddha says, why, why do you need to see this body? This is just going down too. You know? <laughs> if you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. Anyway, you get the idea. It's that kind of regret that the Buddha says we should encourage one another to let that go. We encourage, of course, ourselves and others to let that go. <coughs> I remember a story one time. You know, you know what our alms bowls look like, and um, a lot of times the monastics will make their own alms bowl cover, crochet it. And sometimes this is a thing amongst you. I don't know if you knew that crocheting is one of the skills that monks sometimes learn, and this monk crocheted this beautiful alms bowl cover. And um, I think it was the person who was looking after the monk. So one of the things that you get trained to do in the holy life is to look after someone senior to you, usually quite a bit senior to you. And this um, <coughs> novice monk, was taking care of this senior monk's bowl with this beautiful handmade cover. And it had gotten soiled, and so he washed it. And he hung it um, like on, on the rack by the fire, fireplace, and it caught fire and burned. And he came to the monk, to the senior monk, with this thing in his hand, came to the door of his kuti, and the monk opened the door, and he said, I want you to let that go. You know, just... So this is like, you're not going to have regrets about this. <laughs> you got to let that go. And so this is, this is the kind of regret we don't have, I mean, hopefully. The Buddha is saying, if you're really ethical, then you, it's natural that you won't have regrets. And so what that means is if we have regrets over things that have nothing to do with our moral virtue, we should like all, all kinds of things happen as a result of our decisions. And that's not what's important. What's important is our ethical behavior. So it's only natural that an ethical person has no regrets. And when you, when you have no regrets, you don't have to wish, may I feel joy. Now we've been talking about joy. There are different Pali words that can be translated as joy. And they're different, you know, it's a Pali is so amazing. It's precise, it has it expresses these different mental states, emotions, um, you know, um, spiritual experiences. And this kind of joy here is the Pali word pamoja. And it's not, it's not piti, it's not sukha, it's not like a spiritual joy yet. It's, it's more of a just a a happiness um, that comes from not having regret. 
know, you're, there's an ease. And so this is the kind of joy that you automatically feel that springs up when you have no regrets. You feel light, feel joy. And when you feel joy, you don't have to make a wish, may I experience rapture. So this one's PT, this one is also often translated as joy, but it's this spiritual joy. Some of the other words there are delight, zest, exuberance. This comes out of the Polytech Society Dictionary. And then it's only natural that this, would, that this rapture arises when you feel joyful. And when the mind is full of rapture, you don't have to wish me my body become tranquil. And the word there is pasambatu, to calm down, to be quiet. It's like pasada, pasano, sort of tranquility. It's only natural that your body becomes tranquil when your mind is full of rapture. When your body is tranquil, you don't have to wish me, I feel bliss here. This is the bliss is being used for sukha, sukha, well-being, happiness, ease. It's natural to feel sukha when the body is tranquil. When you feel sukha, bliss, you need not make the wish, may my mind be immersed in samadhi, because it's just naturally carrying you to samadhi. It's only natural for the mind to become immersed in samadhi when you feel bliss. So this is the sequence that you often see, or there can be little variations in it, that the Buddha talks about that leads to the state of immersion where you really are settled and you can go very deep or not. Um, there are, there's a lot of, um, let's say, there are many opinions and different experiences that meditators have that do not agree about how deep that Immersion has to be in order to realize truth. Um, some of you have already heard me say, I asked Ajahn Ganga, you know, how deep does the samadhi need to be? He's like, not that deep. <laughs> different people have different experiences. Some people naturally um, go into very deep states of meditation. And other people don't. Uh, Ajahn Panya Wado said that Ajahn Mahabur taught that if you have a tendency towards jhana, deep states of, of, of immersion, then practice that way. But if you don't, just go into samadhi, which means usually means like maybe about the same kind of experience as the first jhana. You know, just experience that samadhi, it's enough. Just use whatever. So I think the real lesson there is, at least from the from the Thai forest masters, don't think about it very much. Don't try to make these um, 
mental, like these uh, states of concentration that are described in the suttas, don't try to make that happen. And when you try to make something happen in meditation, that usually um, really strangles it. Anyway, but you know, you kind of see these. So as we learn, you know, well, what is VT? How is it experienced? What is sukha? How is it experienced? We have a pretty good idea of what it feels like for the body to be tranquil and for the mind to be tranquil. But as we notice these happening, it's just, you know, okay, this is a good sign. I'm on the right track. You just keep going. As opposed to, okay, I'm feeling dull and drowsy and we need to take care of that and to do something to turn that around and to work with a mind that's restless or fraught with doubt, etc. The, the hindrances. We need to work with them and bring ourselves out of that. But if we're if we're on this track of you know, okay if I if it's if it's um, joy, if it's Rapture, if it's bliss, and those words, rapture and bliss, make it sound so um, special, unusual, extreme. And you can tell by the other words that can be used to translate piti and sukha that it may not be so extreme. So you just you just kind of get get a sense through your practice what that feels like or how that shows up for you. If there's no desire, if there's no wanting something or wanting to get rid of something, there's no sloth and torpor, no restlessness and worry, no fluctuation and doubt, then you're in good, you're in good sh- space, you're in good shape to you know, keep going and see what, what comes, what transpires. So when we get to samadhi here, here it's samadhi's translated as immersion. Translators pretty much agree these days that the old way of translating samadhi as concentration is not a very good idea. It it gives this impression of like bearing down, you know, really I've I've met people who say they get a headache whenever they meditate. They're just so kind of focused. You know, and that again strangles the development. <coughs> so uh, translators have been moving away from using concentration, trying to use immersion. You know, in um, the Ajahn Chah's biography that Ajahn Jayasaro wrote, he used lucid calm to talk about samadhi. So it has that quality of stillness but also lucidity, you're present, you're aware. There's an intelligence there. It's not a floating um, kind of muddled uh, state. It's bright, it's clear. And when that happens, it says here, then you don't have to wish, may I truly know and see. You don't have to wish, may I have insight. You don't have to ask for insight. You or try, try to have insight. You just let that process unfold. It's natural. 
And then this knowing and seeing, yata bhutam, jhanami pasami is what it is here. Um, it's this yata bhutam in truth, in reality, in, in its real essence. Jhanami um, is to know or to experience, pasami is to see find or understand so you know and see the truth the way things actually are so one example might be a direct experience of knowing and seeing impermanence and this is commonly spoken of in the suttas where someone is listening to a dhamma talk or even giving a Dhamma talk, and suddenly they are realizing somehow seeing this direct experience comes that they know that everything is impermanent. Everything, the way it usually translated, everything that's subject to arising is subject to ceasing. Everything that comes into existence in this world and every other world falls apart again. And so this can be experienced in different ways. It could be a vision, but there's a knowing. There's a direct knowing that you can't deny. And this happened with Venerable Sariputta early on in his monastic life. The Buddha was giving a talk. He was standing there with a fan, fanning the Buddha. Hot country, we get a little taste of it today. Mm-hmm. Did you want somebody with a fan? Squishing <laughs> <laughs> kind of the flies away, getting a little breeze. So he's hearing this. The Buddha's talking to people in front of him, and suddenly, Venerable Sariputta is hit with this realization. everything that arises ceases. And that is an indication of stream entry. Stream entry happens right there, right then and there. There's no going back. There's no ever becoming uh, doubt, uh, doubtful about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Enlightened Sangha. This is the first glimpse of Nirvana. And so the It may, this, this, um, in this case, in Samadhi, it may not be that realization, it might be other realizations, but it's direct experience. So the group been chanting about the qualities of the Buddha and the Dhamma, in the chanting book, in the recollection of the Dhamma, it's apparent apparent here and now. <coughs> it's timeless. It encourages investigation. It leads inwards or onwards. And it is to be experienced individually by wise people, by a wise person. So the wisdom comes from knowing 
what's wholesome and unwholesome. It starts with unethical behavior and the wisdom to know what we should and should not be doing, what we should and should not be paying attention to. And then this unfolds through the levels or the layers or the you know, experiences leading to samadhi and to insight. So it's a little hard to communicate, I think, around what really is direct experience. What is this direct realization? So I gave an example. And you see this in the Buddha's very first discourse. Um, that one is in the, in the chanting books also. It's the Dhamma Chaka Palatana Sutta. That one. This starts on page 48. And the part that repeats is when he when he sees the noble truths and each time he says vision, knowledge, insight, wisdom, light arose, he says there arose in me vision, knowledge, insight, wisdom, light concerning things unknown before and he's meditating very deeply he has this experience of seeing Noah's past lives. He sees the coming and going of other beings. He realizes the noble truths. And for each aspect of the noble truths, what the noble truth is, what it is we need to do when we experience that noble truth, like the noble truth of suffering, when we experience suffering, what do we need to do? We need to turn towards it, we need to understand it. And then we need to realize that we've understood it. And each time, the discourse, in the discourse, each time he talks about one of those realizations, each of those realizations, he said, this was the truth, the noble truth of Dukkha. There arose in me this vision, knowledge, insight, wisdom, light concerning things unknown before, this direct realization. So it's like, imagine, and maybe you've had an experience like this, imagine in meditation, the depth of your openness and peace, the stillness of the mind, that's where the knowledge of the Dhamma, the, the direct experience of the Dhamma arises. Something you never knew before. It, sometimes it turns your mind kind of upside down. It's not the way you expect things to be. And it doesn't always happen, as I said, in meditation itself, but meditation, ethical behavior, all of these other things that we're, we've got in this, don't have to wish for that to unfold, it comes. This uh, knowledge can come at other times, like, sorry, Buddha's fanning the Buddha, you're listening to a Dhamma talk, or, when you're doing the dishes or whatever, you know, that kind of insight can arise. And suddenly, 
you see reality and you never saw it before. So when I think about how we awaken, whether it's stream entry or any of the other levels of awakening, it seems like there are kind of two ways. One is through psychic powers, you know, and there's, you know, uh, Mahamogalana was had incredible psychic powers. Like, you know, someone can see their past lives and then they realize how this works. But somebody else might say, well, I don't get that. I don't have those kinds of things happening to me. You know, they may wonder, will I ever understand the Dhamma or will I ever see the Dhamma? But then you've got Venerable Sariputta who had no psychic powers, but he had these kinds of realizations, and that's through wisdom. So he'd say things like, I know because I know the drift of the Dhamma. But it's not through, it's not through reasoning. Um, that's part of the, the thing about the, when we talk about the qualities of the Dhamma, it's it's more subtle than that. It doesn't come through intellectual uh, investigation. It comes through this kind of direct experience. But it's, it's that, um, that ground we're putting in, we're putting in our practice, we're putting in the causes and conditions for that wisdom to arise in us. And it's hugely help, helpful to be around others who encourage both those um, practices to put in those causes and conditions and who have had some of those experiences themselves. So when it's only natural When you've had, when you're, it's only natural to truly know and see when your mind is immersed in samadhi. When you truly know and see, you don't need to make the wish, may I grow disillusioned. And this is nibida. Nibida dami here, it's like, my, may I grow disillusioned, may I become disillusioned, may I get weary of sense pleasures and the world. It means you have a, you've had enough. You're satiated. You're turning away from. It even can go as far as to be disgusted with. It's not with aversion, it's just wow, I've had enough. There's a series of discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, that are called No Discoverable Beginning. If you've never seen them, I, I just found them fascinating. Um, I came, I, I first heard about them at Amaravati when I was living there, and a monk from Sri Lanka was giving sutta study um, sessions. And he talked about his suttas, and 
the way they go, it's like uh, the Buddha will say to the mendicants, so what is greater, the tears that you shed or the water in the great oceans? And the mendicants say, well, according to what you've taught us, it's the tears we've shed. And the Buddha says, that's right. Through all the lifetimes, all the tears you've shed, it's more than the water in the waters in the great oceans. When are you going to have enough? And then, like, the next sutta or something is, what's greater? The amount of your blood that's been shed or the water in the great oceans? And it's the same result. And so this is like really, the Buddha said there's no discoverable beginning of this world, of samsara. So sometimes people ask, is there a creation story? Not really. There is some, uh, I mean the Buddha talked about basically the, the expansion and contraction of the universe, of you know, and so he, I mean, we, our scientific inquiry is uncovering this kind of probability for how this all kind of happens, but it's a, it's a contraction and expansion that continues to happen throughout the eons. We're just in one little phase. Are we expanding or contracting now? We're still expanding. Well, we're not going to live long enough in this lifetime, but who knows what's next, right? Anyway, you get the idea. There's no discoverable beginning, he says. So to recognize, and that kind of makes sense. Samsara is a cycle. It doesn't start anywhere. So what we want to do is still the mind, still the greed, hatred, and delusion, still the craving, the goal of the karma. And then to do that, there is this disillusionment. Sometimes people translate this as disenchantment. You can become disenchanted with the world. And a lot of you have experienced this. Sometimes you've talked to us about it. You know, um, someone recently said to us, am I just going to be, you know, I'm just becoming this really boring person. <laughs> I don't feel like doing this or that or the other thing anymore. <laughs> um, well, they're not boring to us because they're interested, <coughs> vitally interested in Dhamma. And... Um, and, you know, really um, a wonderful Dhamma friend, you know, two Dhamma friends. But, you know, it's like this kind of change of interest is normal. I, I actually think it was Phil. When we first met and we went for a walk, and you talked about how, I hope you don't mind this, we, you talked about <laughs> one of your first Dhamma teacher said something to you like, you're going to lose all your friends. 
<laughs> is this really true? <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but, you know, some people have said, you know, the friends I had before just aren't the friends I have now. You know, and of course, make new, uh, make better friendships and relationships, but that idea that there is this um, feeling of having having had enough. Having had enough. There was also, I actually said this to someone who attended a retreat um, that I was teaching, who happened to be an ophthalmologist. And uh, I said, you know, I once had this um, kind of premonition that I'm going to live to be 102, and I'm going to be blind for the last few years. And he was like, you know, he's trying to keep people's eyesight going. And I said, you know, I was living in England, and I shared this, who knows if that's what's going to happen, but I shared this with uh, another Anagarica. We ran white robes, like Anagarica Sarna. And I told her, you know, you know, this is what might happen. And, and she said, oh, well, by then you will have seen enough. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And I told the ophthalmologist that he went, oh. <laughs> and this is, this is what this is talking about. At some point, it's going to be enough. It's enough. You just want to, you know, like, it's not like you have to push anything away, but it's okay. Be done. It's enough. And that's what it says there. To have had enough. So it's only natural to grow disillusioned when you truly know and see. And when you're disillusioned, you need not make the wish, and may I become dispassionate. This is viraga, viraga Detaching, you're detaching yourself. You free yourself from passion. You show a lack of interest. It's only natural to grow dispassionate when you're disillusioned. When you're dispassionate, you need not make the wish, may I realize the knowledge and vision of freedom. Vimuti is freedom. It's release, it's deliverance, it's emancipation. Yana dasana. Now this is the, the real, the seeing. That is knowledge and understanding. This is insight and knowledge. This is realization. Of Nibbana. It's only natural to realize the knowledge and vision of freedom when you're dispassionate. Because we, we can't open up to the truth fully while we're still holding on, while we're clinging and grasping. The mind is too busy 
it's busy with wanting and wanting to get rid of. And so mendicants. And he goes through through this um, from from you might say the top down, the knowledge and vision of freedom is the purpose and benefit of this passion. This passion is the purpose and benefit of disillusionment. Disillusionment is the purpose and benefit of truly knowing and seeing. Truly knowing and seeing is the purpose and the benefit of immersion of samadhi. Immersion is the purpose and benefit of bliss. Bliss is the purpose and benefit of tranquility. Tranquility is the purpose and benefit of rapture. Rapture is the purpose and benefit of joy. Joy is the purpose and benefit of not having regrets. Not having regrets is the purpose and benefit of skillful ethics. And so, mendicants, and so practitioners, good qualities flow on and fill up from one to the other for going from the near shore to the far shore. And one of the things that's interesting here is how we see so much joy and happiness and tra- you know beautiful states along the way. And when we get to the realizations, you know, you might think, wow, if you just see that everything is falling apart, isn't that going to be frightening? Isn't that going to be the source of grief and the feeling of loss? And but it isn't. When you see it, when you see it that way, when it comes through wisdom, it's such a relief. There's so much joy and happiness that comes from it. It's like, you don't have to work so hard to hold it together. You don't have to keep trying to push that big boulder up the hill. Who was that guy? Thank you. (laughs) You know what happens to it. It just keeps rolling down again. It's not like those people didn't know how it works. It just really does work that way. And it's so much happiness, so much relief. So that's kind of interesting, especially when, you know, sometimes we carry the self-recrimination and the, uh, the, the putting ourselves down, beating ourselves up, striving so hard, our feet bleed, our knees are broken. You know, like, what is that about when the path is really so full of joy? Sometimes I think part of it, like it did happen at the time of the Buddha too, sometimes I think part of it is our our Judeo-Christian overlay here in the West of the Buddhist teachings. But it also shows up in the East. Why do we want to beat ourselves up so much? Yes, we need to strive in the right way. And that helps us to 
really calm down. We have to let go of the right things and, and encourage ourselves. And it does sometimes, um, sometimes it's really hard to pull away from something that we know is actually taking us in the wrong direction because we do get some kind of gratification from it. But then we also have to look at what is the danger. We talked about this. What is the gratification? What is the danger? And what is the escape? And the escape is this. So now, second one, with Chanda. This one is also in the Anguka Nikaya. The first one, making a wish, is actually found in a couple of places, but this version is in the Anguka Nikaya, Book of Elevens, number two. And the one with Chanda is in the Book of Tens, number 176. So I've heard at one time the Buddha was saying near Pava, in Chinda the Smith's mango grove. Obviously being a Smith is pretty lucrative. He has his own mango grove. It's got to be nice. When Chinda the Smith went to the Buddha, bowed and sat down to one side, and the Buddha said to him, So Chinda, whose purity do you believe in? So Chinda wasn't Buddhist. He followed this uh, sect of Brahmins. He said, Sir, I believe in a purity advocated by the Western Brahmins, draped with moss, who carry pitchers, serve the sacred flame, and immerse themselves in water. And the Buddha says, But Chunda, what kind of purity do these Western Brahmins advocate? Chinda's replies, the Western Brahmins encourage their disciples like this. Please, good people, rising early, you should stroke the earth from your bed. If you don't stroke the earth, so, so you reach over and you touch the ground and you stroke it. And that's supposed to bring you purity. If you don't stroke the earth, stroke crushed cow dung. If you don't stroke fresh cow dung, stroke green grass. If you don't stroke green grass, serve the sacred flame. If you don't serve the sacred flame, revere the sun with joined palms. If you don't revere the sun with joined palms, immerse yourself in water three times, including the evening. The Western Brahmins advocate this kind of purity. So that might all sound really strange, you know, but we also uh, know about rituals of various kinds and, you know, a belief that this is somehow going to help. And the Buddha says the purity advocated by the Western Brahmins is quite different from that in the training of the noble one. Here it says noble one, and I think it usually says noble ones. So I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the poem. So in the Buddhist dispensation, you know, 
But what? So then he asks. This is the way to really get people interested. You know, just saying, yeah, that's really different from the way we do it. And then the person says, well, how do you do it? Because the Buddha never forced the teaching on anybody. And we're not allowed to as monastics. We're not allowed to, you know, stand on the street corner and talk about Dhamma or something. We're not allowed to teach the Dhamma unless we've been invited. Because it's kind of disrespectful and rude. That's kind of how you feel. Push your stuff on other people. Okay, so then, you know, he says, um, well, but what, Master Gautama, is purity in the training of the noble one? Master Gautama, please teach me this. He's really, please teach me. Well, uh, then listen and pay close attention and I will speak. So he's like, you know, really, the Buddhist really, he does this all all over the place. It's like, okay, then I'm going to say it and you really pay attention. And he goes, yes, I'll pay attention. So Chanda, impurity is threefold by way of body, fourfold by way of speech, and threefold by way of mind. Now this is ten things that we see in the suttas, and literally hundreds of suttas talk about these ten things. Ten unwholesome things, and then we're going to see the ten wholesome corollaries. How is impurity threefold by way of body? It's when a certain person kills living creatures. They're violent, bloody-handed, a hardened killer, merciless of living beings. They steal with the intention to commit theft. They take the wealth and belongings of others from village or wilderness. They commit sexual misconduct. They have sexual relations with, so he's talking to a man and a lot of, in the, um, in the Nikais, everything's very male-centric, so you can imagine the other side of it, but here they have sexual relations with women who have their mother, father, both mother and father, brother, sister, relatives, or clan as guardian. They have sexual relations with a woman who is protected on principle. What that is is protected based on dhammas, so I think it's probably nuns um, and the others. Or who has a husband, or whose violation is punishable by law, which thank goodness is every woman in America and many other places. Or even one who's been garlanded as a token of betrothal, so she's engaged. This is the threefold infusion of body. And how is impurity fourfold by way of speech? It's when a certain person lies. They're summoned, so this description I've never found very compelling. We know what it means to lie, but he's giving this example of you're brought into a courtroom or a, a council or an assembly or family meeting or a guild, um, royal court, and you're asked, you know, what do you know? And they say, um, not knowing, not knowing anything, they say they know, 
or knowing something they say they don't know. Not seeing what happened, they say I see, and seeing, they say I don't see. So they deliberately lie for the sake of themselves or another or for some trivial worldly reason. They speak divisively. They repeat in one place what was heard in another so as to divide people against each other. And so they divide those who are harmonious, supporting division, delighting in division, loving division, speaking words that promote division. They speak harshly. They use the kinds of words that are cruel, nasty, hurtful, offensive, bordering on anger, not leading to immersion. So this is, this, you're far, far away from a still mind. You're doing these kinds of things. They talk and they, and they um, throw the monkey wrench into other people's stillness too. The ta- they talk nonsense. Their speech is untimely and is neither factual nor beneficial. It's, it has nothing to do with the Dhamma or the Vinaya, the teaching or the training. Their words have no value and are untimely, unreasonable, rambling, and pointless. This is the fourfold impurity by way of speech. And how is impurity threefold by way of mind? It's when it's a, a certain person is covetous. They covet the wealth and belongings of others. Oh, if only their belongings were mine. They have ill will and malicious intentions. May these sentient beings be killed, slaughtered, slain, destroyed, or annihilated. They have wrong view. Their perspective is distorted. They think there is no meaning in giving, sacrifice, or offerings. Here, sacrifice means giving what's hard to give. There's a beautiful word in Thai. Um, do you remember? I've just got this Pali word in my head. Siesala. Siesala is giving what's hard to give. It's like you're making that extra effort. Um, we were giving a teaching and there were there was a Thai couple there and um, we were explaining we were talking about the way Ajahn Gana uses this word siesala a lot. Like he's really give they really do everything as a gift. Everything, your work, you know, everything. And that makes so much difference. If we're having a hard time with what we've signed up to do or what we're expected to do or what we have to do, if we, if we really think of it as a gift, it can make such a difference. And so he's, he talks about Siesala a lot, and I ask the, this Thai couple to tell us about what Siesala is. And we happened to be in a, in a place where the place was packed and there were, you know, like multiple people and people standing, um, not able to actually get in the room. And the man said, Siesala, Siesala here is to give your chairs and that. <laughs>
So this idea that there is no benefit to giving or, or offering, there's no fruit or result of good and bad actions. This is not. There were philosophies at that time, and there probably still are. That there's no result. You do bad things, there's no result. You do good things, there's no result. This is wrong view. It's wrong view to think there's no life after this life. It's wrong view to think that there's no such thing as mother and father. That one was really puzzling to me for a long time, but the idea actually is that we don't have the connection with our mother and father that um, rightly includes caring for them, repaying them to some degree. And that there's no beings that are reborn spontaneously. So this also has to do with rebirth, the next life. Spontaneous birth happens in the data realms and also probably in the lower realms. I mean, in the animal realm and the human realm, we know how birth works. You enter a womb and you come out, and that's not spontaneous. But when you die, just like all the stories we've heard of people going to heaven, you just pop in. <laughs> so he's saying it's wrong of you to think that that doesn't happen. And it's also wrong of you to think that there is no practitioner. Here it says a Sadiqabhan, no holy person who is well attained in practice or who describes the afterlife after realizing it with their own insight. So again, future lives, life, rebirth, this is something that we can know by direct experience, like we talked about. And so this is the belief that there are no people who know this. So this is the threefold impurity by way of mind. And these are the ten ways of doing unskillful deeds. And when you have these ten ways of doing unskillful deeds, then if you rise early, whether or not you stroke the earth from your bed, you're still impure. And it goes through the rest of it. Whether or not you stroke fresh cow dung, you're still impure. Whether or not you stroke green grass, you're still impure, and so on. Whether or not you revere the sun with joined palms, you're still impure. Then he talks about, well, what he says is at the bottom of that page, it's because of those who do these ten kinds of unskillful deeds that hell, the animal realm, and the ghost realm are another, or any other bad places are found. Like if no one ever did these things or being in such places, that's the result of our, action, our bad actions. Chinda, purity is threefold by the way of body, fourfold by way of speech, threefold by way of mind. And how is purity threefold by way of body? It's when a certain person gives up killing living creatures. They renounce the rod and the sword. They're scrupulous and kind, living full of compassion for living beings. Now notice it's like 
it doesn't just say that they don't do it, like they've given it up. I mean, they've done it in the past, probably, but they don't do it anymore. So it's one of the beautiful things in the Dhamma. It's like, whatever we're doing, we can decide to not do it anymore, if it's unwholesome. And that's purity. Because when we decide not to do it anymore, and we don't do it anymore, that that staying purifies out of our system over time, over because of that that action of not doing it. Over time, the whole kind of inclination to do it, the memories of doing it, the the energy that was created by doing it all begins to dissolve and fade. And that's purification. They give up stealing. They don't, with the intention to commit theft, take the wealth and belongings of others from village or wilderness. They give up sexual misconduct. They don't have sexual relations, you know, as we said before, by women who are, with women who are protected. But of course, sexual misconduct goes farther than that. You know, and it's pretty well defined in our culture, I think. Sexual abuse, sexual assault. Um, what do they call it in the workplace? Harassment. All of that sexual misconduct. We had a man who was coming, he was super stressed, and um, he found us online and he started coming to our suit studies in Mountain View you know, high-tech job, um, immigrant, having a really tough time. And one of the first things, and he's Buddhist, um, but, you know, like a lot of us, we have a religion of birth, and maybe we practice, maybe we don't. But one of the first things that happened is that he and his, Bhikkhu Bodhi came to visit us, and he and his wife came and offered a meal to Bhikkhu Bodhi and us. And Bhikkhu Bodhi immediately um, gave him the five precepts. And he really took it seriously. And every week he would come, not every week, but every once in a while, he would talk about his experience of now keeping the five precepts. And he said, yeah, I walk through, through the grocery store and I see the wine aisle and I go, nope. <laughs> And then when Wiki said, you know, I've stopped flirting with the women at work. And I am available to my wife like I never imagined I would be. It was such a beautiful thing. He was so delighted. And he just, you could see the peace and happiness growing in this person. Totally different. Totally different. The way you showed up. It's really amazing to take these things seriously. Then we have those are the threefold purities by way of the body. And how is the purity fourfold by way of speech? It's when a certain person gives up lying, they're summoned to the council. 
if they know, they say they know, and if they don't know, they say they don't know. If they've seen something, they say they've seen it. If they haven't, they say they haven't seen it. They don't tell a deliberate lie for the sake of themselves or another or for some trivial worldly reason. They give up divisive speech. They don't repeat in one place what they've heard in another so as to divide people against each other. Instead, they reconcile those who are divided, support unity, delight in harmony, they love harmony, they speak words that promote harmony. They give up harsh speech. They speak in a way that's, well here it says, mellow, <laughs> pleasing to the ear, lovely, going to the heart, polite, likable, and agreeable to people. Sometimes it says words that are worth recording. They give up talking nonsense. Their words are timely, true, and meaningful, in line with the teaching and the training. They say things at the right time, which are valuable, reasonable, succinct, and beneficial. These are the fourfold purity by way of speech. And how is purity threefold by way of mind? It's when a certain person is content. They don't covet the wealth and belongings of others. They don't think, oh, if only those things were mine. They have a kind heart and loving intentions. May these sentient beings live free of enmity and ill will, untroubled and happy. They have right view and undisturbed perspective. There is meaning in giving, in sacrifice and siyasala in offerings. There are fruits and results of good and bad actions. There is an afterlife. There are such things as mother and father and our connection with them and our um, support of them. There are beings that are reborn spontaneously. And there are ascetics and Brahmins who are well-attained and practiced and who describe the afterlife after realizing it with their own insight. These are the threefold purity by way of mind. These are the ten ways of doing skillful deeds, skillful actions. And when you have these ten ways of doing skillful actions, if you rise early, whether or not you stroke the earth with your hand from your bed, you're still pure. Whether or not you stroke fresh cow dung, you're still pure, etc. It's because of those who do these ten kinds of skillful deeds that the devas, the, the deva realms, and human realms, and any other good places are found. And when this was said, Chunda the smith said to the Buddha, Excellent. It's so excellent. From this day forward, may the Buddha remember me as a lay follower who's gone for refuge for life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.